Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, meet Arkansas's new chief data officer and what makes Vermont's broadband office different. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world, and you'll learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. Utah Governor Spencer Cox signed two bills to limit minors from accessing social media sites without parental consent and during certain times of the day. The now laws will prohibit those under the age of 18 from using social media between the hours of 10.30 p.m. and 6.30 a.m. The law also requires age verification for all social media users in the state, and the regulation takes effect March 1, 2024. The FCC has been busy updating its national broadband map, which will be, quote, noticeably better, Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel says. The map will contain more than one million new locations added to the broadband fabric, which maps the locations where fixed broadband access could be installed. The first version was released in November, and the second version is expected this spring. U.S. House members introduced legislation designed to speed up the national upgrade to a modern 911 system. The Next Generation 911 Act of 2023, led by Representatives Anna Eshoo and Richard Hudson, would provide $15 billion to help local 911 call centers upgrade technology. It would also provide a standalone funding mechanism for these efforts. You can find these stories and more at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. Arkansas has a new chief data officer. Robert McGough stepped into the role earlier this month. He's replacing Josh McGee, who split his time between state government and the University of Arkansas. McGough is the first full-time chief data officer in the state. McGough tells State Scoop's Keely Quinlan how he got started in the role and what's on his to-do list. I'm probably the only one now that's been there from the beginning, so back, it, which actually goes back to 2015 when the, the legislature passed um, a, a nice piece of legislation kind of just identifying um it, it's acts 1282 of 2015 it's like it, it's a good model for other states to kind of start with what are the problems we're seeing duplication of data and efforts we are not seeing the kind of the the, the access to data that's useful to legislators or the executive branch or the citizens um and you know seeing silos many states silos um and kind of setting um up what's called the open data uh task force for a year that met all of county year 2016 with the uh, heads of the executive agencies to say let's get together and meet on a regular basis hear from other other state exemplars here you know from industry experts and um, legislative audit did um a, a nice study on the benefits of centralized state data warehousing and just came together to kind of put together an approach. And that's really what informed uh, Act 912 of 2017, which established the, the role of the CDO, established the state chief privacy officer. And um, we've had the same chief privacy officer the whole time, Jennifer Davis. Uh, it established the uh, data and transparency panel, which sort of acts as our executive data governance board. So it's, um, it's now expanded after transformation to the secretary designee of all 15 executive agencies, plus the judicial branch, and seats for the um, House, Senate, and Governor's Office. So it's, it, that, and we meet uh, quarterly in an open forum. Um, and then, you know, for, especially early on when we were trying to establish a statewide data sharing agreement or figuring out how to do some uh, more detailed things around governance, we would meet biweekly or monthly with smaller groups and more tactical groups. Gotcha, gotcha. 
Um, so, you know, as part of the the news release um, about your appointment, it stated, you know, you're going to start concentrating on like policy and lead the, the state's efforts to improve data structure, security and data use. So, you know, what's your take on where the state um, is going with some of those initiatives as it relates to to data privacy and maybe the overlap between that and cybersecurity? And a lot of that, and, the, and we do have a chief um, information security officer for the state, so that the CPO, the, the CISO, and myself, I think we, we kind of balance each other out as a triangle, because I'm my role is to kind of be a cheerleader for the value of data and trying to make sure that, that we're, we're getting the right risk utility trade-off, that we're using the data and we're using it wisely and efficiently and effectively. And, you know, the, CC, the CISO's first priority is safety of the data data and cybersecurity and things like that. Um, whereas the CPO is really making sure that everything's uh, compliant, that we're doing things with you know considerations uh, for ethical use of data and privacy and things like that. So like we, that way we've each kind of championed different forces and kind of like balance each other out. Um, but it's very much to be able to get the use of the data. Um, a lot of what I'm driving is this sort of like tiered access foundation to kind of move us from this binary, like all or nothing data sharing mentality and peer to peer, you know, having these different tiers, which, um, and we're not the only state doing it, other states are doing it where you've, you've got, you know, you might have real time sharing of individual level identified data for shared case management and different operational use for authorized users. And on the Total opposite of the spectrum, if you apply enough privacy preserving controls, most data can be turned in, into open data for transparency purposes. But there's there are other nuances in the middle where we're kind of having secure areas for you know approved researchers doing approved projects on approved data with, with the right governance controls around that and with like a three safe framework so that we can um, improve the risk utility trade-off where uh, researchers can maybe do work in a secure data enclave, everything's better at compliant everything. Um, working with individual level um, de-identified data or whatever is called for by the different agreements. Um, you know, we're bringing the researchers to the data and not the data to the researchers. Um, so it, it allows, you know, a lot, a lot more state control over the security of the data, the privacy of the data, the compliance of the data. And then there's a disclosure review process. So that, um, and this is facilitated through the administrative data research facility with the College Initiative. Um, and many Midwestern, Eastern, and Southern states are using it now. But another benefit is we're, we're working on um, sharing the data with standard layouts and building products because then we can scale the products across states or or repeatable research. You know, then I have to have access to the data. But if we're working off of standard data models. Then you know, code in an example, um, code for an unemployment to reemployment portal that was initially developed in Illinois got deployed to other states, so they could just use that. And now, Arkansas is working on adding some enhancements to it. Wisconsin's working on adding enhancements to it. You know, that will go back and benefit Illinois because <laughs> their portal gets better, and, and we benefited from the head start. And the more states participate, we're all kind of coming together as, you know, co-designers and co-developers of products from a state-driven perspective. Granted, you've only been in the position a little over a week, but what has it been like trying to get, you know, either, I mean, you've been 
you know, with the state for quite some time. So I imagine it's not that jarring of a transition, but you know, what's it been like? Uh, it's, it's been fantastic. Has it been a little bit of a shift? Fortunately, I've got the benefit of having, you know, 22 years working with the data and the people and you know, like the, the kind of knowing like the business priorities and things like that. But particularly in my first day was um, the first meeting of the governor's workforce cabinet. So it's, you know, it's a, um, and then meeting with other secretaries and, you know, additional um, acts have been passed and executive orders have come out. So really kind of focusing on that shift from foundation building to responding to our state's priorities, to, to leveraging what we have to, to be responsive to these emerging needs. Right. So to piggyback off of that, what are those emerging needs? What are those priorities that you're, you know, excited to start focusing on? And they they generally fall into our our, our um, governor's very focused on uh, workforce development, education, and public safety, which, which uh, and there's workforce to, is a kind of key foundation across all of that. Um, and so a lot of our initiatives are already kind of like focused on different aspects of that the common thing across domains is making sure that we're supporting pervasive data sharing with you know security and governance with that tiered access framework um developing trained communities of practice so because if, if we have a safe environment you have to have people that know how to use the environment <laughs> to respond to state priorities you know the, the data and the tools like they, they need a trained community to use it so you know constantly developing and delivering cloud uh, training classes to, to train, you know, um, state employees, which were intentional about mixing across agencies and across states and, and or mixing between state employees and higher education researchers so that, you know, coders are learning how to work with policy experts and uh, domain experts and, you know, building relationships across agency and state lines and, and kind of building that network because everyone's got different priorities and expertise. So the person who uh, has, experience that might really help you might be in Alabama or New Jersey. <laughs> so then, you know, just to, to wrap this up, in your opinion, is there an area in like public sector tech, specifically, obviously with da data management that you think needs more attention or what are the emerging trends that you're seeing that um, you think are going to become more important as, as we, you know, move into the future? From a, a State CDO role and 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 this well this affects everybody you know you know it, it's always been structured relational data a lot of that but um that there's this big shift going on right now towards skills based learning and hiring you know a lot of employers are taking credential requirements off of some jobs and looking at how to like um, hire with skills but uh, most state data systems don't go down to that granular level. It's occupation, if that, and you know, like a post-secondary credential, but that that there's, but they both represent sort of buckets of skills, um, and this is a global thing. It's not just the U.S. The European Union has named 2023 the Year of Skills, and it's I think like it's policy relevant for every state to be figuring out how to do the blocking and tackling to support skills-based learning and hiring, and so that's it's going down to different grain. It, it's you know developing new data generation and sharing for today's needs. Um, but it's also moving a little bit past our, our kind of standard like relational structured data systems because that's where it's kind of moving more into 
blockchain and like decentralized self-sovereign identity and things like that, things like learning, interoperable learning and employment records. Interoperable being key because people people move. And so we don't want to build bigger silos or state specific. Um, so there's a lot of effort going on right now for states to be working together to kind of like co-develop interoperable standards so that we, we've got um, you know, credit for prior learning and transferability across state lines and kind of being able to have, you know, timely open, like linked open data on that credentials and, and ass uh, assertions of employment or, or credential attainment or things like that that are available to a, a, you know, a broad array of public and private technologies that can easily be transferred across state lines. We're all speaking the same language, having that semantic consistency. And so that's probably one of our big key focuses for this year. But that supports a lot of, you know, that it that's relevant to workforce development. It's highly relevant to education. It's relevant to public safety or even, um, you know, social services. Robert McGough, the new chief data officer for the state of Arkansas. You can read more about him and the state's data efforts at stateshoop.com and in links in today's show notes. I'm Jake Williams, host of State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Voting is closing soon for the 2023 State Scoop 50 Awards. Cast your votes now for the top leaders and projects across the community at statescoop.com slash statescoop50 or at a link in today's show notes. Voting closes at midnight on April 7th. Vermont is taking a bit of a different approach to broadband than other states. Christine Hallquist is the director of the state's broadband office. She ran against Governor Phil Scott in the 2018 election. Scott appointed her to lead the state's broadband office in 2021. In the role, Hallquist says she leverages the state's communications union districts to bring a more community-focused approach to broadband expansion. She tells StateScoop's Lindsay McKenzie how she got into the role and what's coming next for Vermont broadband. Yeah, I won't go through my, you know, I've got quite a extensive career, but um, the appropriate and relative background ties with the fact that I uh, became CEO of Vermont Electric Cooperative in uh, 2000. And, and um, it was uh, in bankruptcy at the time, and we started making some uh, significant investments in technology and ultimately became an A-plus rated company. But And and I, I would say I credit that a lot to the technology investments we made, as well as you know the other financial changes we made. But as part of that job in 2003, the board of directors asked me to uh, find out what we can do to get broadband to our rural Vermont customers because Vermont Electric Co-op served essentially the rural parts of Vermont. And and of course, you know, since it's an elected board, that question was asked several times during my tenure there. And uh, we it really it boiled down to the fact that these are really expensive areas to serve, and the reason they weren't served. It's because it costs so much. But in 2018, I left. I left my post as the uh, CEO of the cooperative, and became the Democratic candidate for governor. And the platform was getting everybody connected to fiber optic broadband. Of course, you know I didn't uh, win that race. Um, and in fact, I actually like Phil Scott, the governor. He asked me to be on his administration in 2016 and 2018. I was his opponent. And then a year, about a, July 21, he asked me to do this for the entire state. So that's, of course, how healthy politics should work. So anyway, Vermont, if you look at what Vermont's done in terms of setting up this broadband office, uh, a couple years uh, ago, I think it was around 2019, Vermont started work done going down the route of what it can do in order to build enough capacity in order to get these areas served. So they designed what are called communication union districts. And communication union districts are municipal districts where more 
one or more towns can or two or more towns can join together to actually uh, figure out how to serve their communities. And uh, turns out that was a really good idea. And today we have uh, 216 of our 252 towns are now members of communication union districts. And the legislature had passed uh, legislation that requires all grant funding to go through the CUDs and it, or it can go through towns not associated with CUDs as long as they have a universal service plan. And the key behind this is a universal service plan. And behind that universal service plan is a requirement to serve everybody with in the, in the law, it says 100 over 100 megabits per second, which is actually fiber optic. So we have a plan now. And of course, with all the generous funding that's come out of the federal government, we now have a plan to get everybody connected. So I like to say that our, our office has three major goals. One is get everybody connected, and we have a plan to do that. Number two is make it affordable, and we're working on that. And the third is maximize positive social impact. And which that really uh, relates well with the with the federal goals around equity. So if you look at the broadband equity access and employment program, equity is a, is a key component of that program. Is that CUD structure pretty unusual? We're the only state that has this structure right now. Uh, the smallest see we have ten CUDs. The smallest is is uh, now the Chittenden County CUD, which I think is I think it's up to about five towns, but officially. Actually, it's seven towns. Smallest is seven towns. The largest is 55 towns, which is the Northeast NEK broadband. Um, so they, they, you know, it's uh, um, so it varies in size, but it's it's related to uh, you know the 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 way it's been divided is the towns basically divided themselves up, mm-hmm. and it's pretty much you know divided by density and character. For example, you know Lamoille Union. Uh, Lamoille district has um, is a, one of the more denser districts and it's smaller. Um, and the Chittenden district was formed really to serve some of the pockets in uh, in the in our larger area. You know, even in some of the as, as you will you'll see throughout the country, even in some of the more urban areas, there are still pockets that are unserved. And mm-hmm. that's really ties to the economic capacity of those people in the area. Mm hmm. You mentioned earlier that some of those areas are really hard to get to because it's so expensive to build out the infrastructure. I know Vermont has mountains and, you know, varying landscape. Is that part of the issue that some of these places are just really geographically remote? Yes. In fact, um, a couple things behind that one is, you know, the, the uh, because we're such a, a rural state. We're second smallest state in the union, six hundred forty-one thousand population. Um, we have areas of real, really poor copper infrastructure. So those areas in there, uh, that you know, and DSL is what's served over the copper infrastructure, and that just was really designed for telephone, not for mm-hmm. broadband. So DSL essentially can't can't um, can't cut it these days. Um, Wireless doesn't work well because we're heavily forested. Uh, Vermont is great, over 80% forested, and we have a lot of hilly terrain, and the signals can't get around that terrain. So really, the only real choice we have is fiber optic broadband. Um, and and the areas of, can, are, can be of low density as well. You know, it, it um, typically the for-profit uh, companies will go down as low as 20 passings per mile. 
Some of them are getting down to 11 or 12 passings per mile because they have some federal funding through what's called the ACAM program. But really, once you drop below 12, there's nothing uh, that could, there's no, there's no way to do it financially. We're, and we're, right now, our unserved areas are averaging about eight passings per mile. That means eight potential customers per mile. I guess that's not that many. I mean, it's, uh, is that eight kind of households, essentially? Yeah, eight households. Yeah. A passing is a household. So. Mm-hmm. But we even have areas, for example, that are down down to, to two or three in the Northeast Kingdom, right? So yes. it's a, and once you drop below about four paying customers per mile, even if you gave the network away, you wouldn't be able to pay for it because of the operation and maintenance costs. Right. I've been talking to a lot of people recently about the FCC broadband maps and mapping generally. And I'm curious if Vermont has done its own mapping effort, maybe if that CUG structure is helpful in terms of reporting data and building up your own statewide data. Yeah, we Vermont really has a nice, but had a has a nice GIS database for as long as I can remember. You know, it's a we had pretty uh, good maps, and I wouldn't say accurate maps, but good maps, probably the some of the best in the country uh, prior to this. But even a good map still has a lot of error in it. Um, so the FCC maps, I wouldn't call those good maps. <laughs> we and uh, you know we look at. You know, you look at uh, 310,000 locations in Vermont. You know, we talk about a population of 641,000, but there's actually 310,000 households. About 100,000 of those uh, addresses we've challenged. I'm wondering if it creates a problem for you if, you know, people are individually sending data to the FCC and reporting things that maybe you don't know about. You know, how do you access that information? Well, you know, we're, we're actually... Happy, happy for people to get involved in any way they can. So, the fact that we may not know is okay. Um, it, the process is really designed to for consumers to work directly with the FCC. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know we're like I say, the information is kind of trickling back from the FCC in terms of the challenge. They're letting us know, you know, as they challenge, as they accept those challenges. I don't necessarily see any problem with the fact that people are going directly to the FCC because ultimately, although I, I, I would prefer that the, uh, the federal government allow be using the state maps because they're by definition going to be more accurate. You know, the closer you get to the source, the more accurate you're going to be. That's kind of one of those laws of physics. But so that said, it's the FCC maps that are going to be used to, to uh, you know, issue, issue the funds. So ultimately, it's most important to get those correct. What are you prioritizing at the moment in terms of federal grant funding? And um, I'm guessing the bead planning grants are a big deal, but are there other things you're working on too? Well, right now we have, um, we're, we're actually in, five of our 10 CUDs are actually in construction now. So mm-hmm. our focus right now is very laser focused on getting the network built. Um, we spend a great deal of effort uh, putting together a grant application for the middle mile grant. Uh, we, mm-hmm. we, we submitted a $114 million competitive application, and that involved doing a statewide design with you know re- redundant rings internally and, and connections to Canada, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and, and New York. So we you know, a lot of our work up to this date has been on the design side and on the grant, you know, the grant, um, the grant development and grant administration side. Uh, but we are 
that was our focus for 2022. 2023, clearly the focus is on construction. And that's at the statewide level. At our office, our our focus has now shifted to the planning side. We've done a lot of work in the area of of the uh, digital equity and the infrastructure plan. We, We put together an advisory committee of about 16 different agencies and organizations, and we're now putting out an RFP for uh, from some help, some help on putting those plans together. We're in it, from the infrastructure side. We think we're in good shape because uh, by definition, these CUDs are reaching directly into the communities. Each CUD uh, has a primary and an alternate from every town on its board, oh, so yeah. we're able to use that to reach right back into the towns, um, and it's been very effective. Um, so. Uh, because we've got a plan to a universal service plan to get every address connected because we've got the uh, communication union districts with representatives for every town and we're starting construction. You know, we think we're well on the way to meeting the goals of the bead infrastructure plan on the equity side. Of course, we're, we're working higher on that side as well, but we've, we've already had several meetings and uh, are in the process of putting the RFP to write the plan. Mm-hmm. Could you tell me a little bit about like the profile of those representatives from the towns? Are they people with broadband expertise or are they just, you know, regular citizens who are interested in it? Well, for the most, what's really nice is we have about 428 volunteers on boards throughout the state. So it's really a nice effort. You know, when I was the CEO of Vermont Electric Cooperative, I had a picture in my office of the first electric pole that was set in Vermont by the cooperatives in 1939. And it was about 20 men, women, and children setting a pole. And I was thinking to myself, those wouldn't have been an exciting time to live back then with that kind of focus. But we're doing that today. You know, Mm. across the state, we've got volunteers working on getting this network built. And there really are some really great experts, you know, people who have who have been, you know, top executives of telecom companies, uh, financial experts. So for the most part, these uh, boards are, there's a lot of talent built into these boards because typically the person that volunteers from the community is the one that's underserved and the one that, you know, has the most desire to get that taken care of. And that's, you know, oftentimes it's people with, who are trying to uh, do their work through telecommunications. I've heard a lot of states, well, I get the impression that there are states that are kind of struggling to do that community outreach. And I'm wondering if you think the model that you've created could be replicated? I mean, is it hard to set something like that up? Does it take a long time? Do you have any advice on on how to reach into communities and and get that volunteer effort going? It does take a long time. You know, the political process is slow. And, you know, this was done through legislative, uh, through legislation. Mm -hmm. And of course it had passed through uh, the House and Senate side. By the way, it, it had all the votes, there was only one who voted against it when the bill came up. So it's very unanimous consent. I don't know if states can move that fast to set something like this in time to meet the deadlines. Um, Mm -hmm. It is, you know, I I do feel uh, we have a great advantage because we have this in place. I'm not sure how other states would do it that quick in order to, to get it in place at this point. I'm curious about your thoughts about digital equity, and I've had a lot of discussion recently about, you know, the difference between access and adoption. And I'm wondering, do you think you put a greater focus on adoption than access, or is that shifting? It sounds like you're kind of 
getting the infrastructure in place. So what are the next steps? And you mentioned affordability. Is that a big one? Well, yeah, affordability is a challenge. Uh, be, uh, and, and uh, right now our focus is to get as much grant funding as possible. If you look at the cost to the consumer, over half of that cost right now on, on their monthly bill will be debt service because we're funding about 60% of the cost of capital through grants and the other 40% needs to be funded through through borrowing. And of course, the borrowing costs are high right now. So uh, um, we have... Uh, you know, 245 million in ARPA funds, as well as another hundred, we're counting on the hundred million dollar minimum for the states. Hmm. But additional funds, for example, if we if we did manage to land the middle mile infrastructure grant and got the best case scenario, it is, you know, remotely possible we could get 100 percent of this infrastructure with covered with grant funding. Every 50 million dollars in grant funding received reduces the consumer cost by ten dollars. So, you know, we and so, you know, at the lowest cost, we could get the cost down to $50 as an average rate per customer, which means we could offer programs, you know, that that are, are, could get almost free considering the uh, the uh, federal ACP program. So right now our focus is on grant funding. But the most important part, as you talk about, is uh, is is what are the you know, what are the positive social impacts of this? And of course, the, focus, uh, the equity program focuses on, you know, the, the elderly, the incarcerated. There's, a, there's about eight targeted populations in there. And we've got all those representative on our advisory committee. And so the idea is, you know, bringing devices, bringing training, bringing support for those that aren't using it today, because those people that are on the other side of the digital divide are also on the other side of the economic divide. And of course, this just creates even more problems for them. Uh, you know, another consideration I like to talk about is the positive impact it can have even for agriculture. You know, we've, 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 um, we've seen that, you know, studies show that you can save greater than 30% of your nutrient costs through, uh, through sub-meter accuracy of the of soil monitoring, those kind of things. You know, we have one one uh, farm that we're working with, 900-acre farm, where the, the the farm manager, who who is a, by the way a master's graduate from UVM University of Vermont, you know, great. She's a, she's a brilliant young woman who can't wait for the the infrastructure to come because mm-hmm. she drives 100 miles a day just to check the moisture content on her crops. You know, you think wow. about yeah. all the value added that she can get from it by just not driving and even freeing up her brain to work on other issues, right? Mm-hmm. Let alone the carbon impact and the other things. So there's all kinds of. I, I think we've only scratched the surface of what this can do for the rural com- communities. Uh, um, and we're, you know, we're gonna we're gonna stay on this till we uh till we see the maximal return in terms of the investment. Christine Hallquist, the director of the Vermont Broadband Office. You can read more about her and broadband at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. You can subscribe to the Priorities Podcast at PrioritiesPodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, be sure to leave a review or rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that more people find the show. This podcast is a production of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help put it together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.